shaking them and giving them a good hard jerk and saying, look, you know, eternity is just right around the corner. It's a heart attack away from half you guys listening. And um, we prayed uh, for his family. And I, I don't know, there's something so special in impromptu, spontaneous prayers like that. I think God can do a really big work through prayers where suddenly, you know, you get hit broadside with the Spirit of Christ and He just tells you, pray. Well, I want to tell you this morning about three kind of spontaneous prayers that I prayed during the course of my own life and the difference that God has made in my life because I prayed those prayers. For some of you, this is going to sound a little bit like a testimony, but... Um, but basically, it's just about prayer and the difference that prayer has made in my life. I didn't pray much when I was a kid growing up. Um, I always knew there was a God who was, there, who was there. I knew he cared, heard stories, you know, about him. But not until I was in high school did the whole idea about God being personal become real to me. I was invited to go away on a Young Life weekend retreat. Now, I don't know how much you all know about Young Life, but it's just, you know, kind of a, a parachurch youth group where they uh, truck a bunch of kids off to weekend camps and they give them the gospel and an invitation is offered and kids either come to Christ or they don't. Well, I was not excited about the coming to Christ part, but I was excited that there were going to be a lot of cute guys going on this weekend camp. And so I signed up through a couple of Levi's in a suitcase and hopped up on the bus, trucked away to this camp, and had a great time. It was so much fun. Um, the place was alive. Um, the girls were, were real, you know, not plastic. And, and, and the guys, man, they were just so special. They, they, nobody treated me like an underclassman that I was, a lowly sophomore. I just felt so much a part of things. But that night, um, on a Saturday night, I was sitting on the camp meeting floor looking up into the face of the speaker and he was talking about the gospel of Christ. But oddly enough, he was reading out of the Old Testament. And I thought to myself, that's a strange place to be talking about Jesus, the Old Testament. Yet, as he listed through the Ten Commandments, one by one by one, out of the Old Testament, he challenged us kids. To measure our lives up against those commandments one by one. And hey, I was only 14. Um, you know, I, I didn't know the ropes, but I could at least put two and two together to realize I was missing the mark by a long way. No, I had never committed adultery. I didn't even know what bearing false witness meant. But as I listed my life up against the commandments, it, it occurred to me that that I did not know God. Now, you would have thought that would have broken my heart and forced me to my knees in repentance, but um, I was rather indifferent at the, quote, altar call when they asked all of the kids to come up front and make confessions to Jesus. I, I didn't want to do that because I was angry. I mean, I felt like, Great God, you give us a bunch of commandments that you know very well we can't even keep. I mean, don't you think that's just a tad unfair? I just can't believe that you would expect people that you created to live a perfect life. There's no way any of us can live a perfect life. God 
you're just not being fair. I remember hiking my sweatshirt up around my shoulders and slamming out the back door and finding a rock. I sat on it, looked up into the starry blanket. I'm serious. If you had been there, you, you may have seen um, a Ford has a better idea light bulb flash on right above my head. Because suddenly, man, it just hit me. It occurred to me. Yes, of course. This is why Jesus has come. God knew we couldn't live the perfect life. He knew we, there was no way we were going to keep the Ten Commandments. So he did it. He became God in the flesh. And he lived the perfect life so that when he died on that cross, he was bearing his own Father's judgment against me. And um, sitting on the rock, I couldn't ignore that kind of love. I couldn't refuse it. I couldn't walk away from it. I couldn't straddle the fence about it. I just had to do something. And so I bowed my head and I prayed and I... I didn't know all the fancy words to say. I had never prayed before, but it was the first spontaneous and yet most significant prayer that I had ever prayed. And I said, God, I bundle up all the sin and I put it at the foot of your cross. Here, take it. And come into my life and give me the power to live the kind of life that's really going to please you. Well, I... I said amen, got up on the rock, ran back to my counselor's cabin, told her what had happened. And I got up to a pretty good start. But I have to confess that I had things a bit backwards. Although I had accepted Christ as my Savior, I have to admit to you that I I felt like I had done him a great big favor. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like when you've obeyed God, you've done him a real big favor, like, hey, God, notice this. And that was kind of an upside-down way of looking at the abundant Christian life. In fact, I began to get the abundant Christian life very confused with the great American dream. I had figured I'd lose weight, homework would be less boring, I'd get a new boyfriend, go off to some wonderful East Coast college, uh, get a good career, make a great salary, um, drive a Porsche, married a man who drove another Porsche, and, you know, we'd uh, get married and buy Ethan Allen furniture, and uh, I had it all figured out what we would do. To me, the abundant Christian life was, was very much confused with the great American dream, so I'm sure you can understand that I began to have real problems. Because my sense of values was so upside down, I began to experience loneliness, boredom, frustration. Didn't, gain, didn't lose weight, I gained it. And sure, I got a boyfriend. In fact, he even professed Christ as well. But because Christ was not at the center of our lives, we lacked power in both of our lives. And you know what danger that can mean on a Friday night with your boyfriend, right? We dated for a couple of years, and one thing led to another, and before you know it, we were immersed in all kinds of moral impurity. And I felt like such a stupid hypocrite, saying one thing to my family, and one thing at church, and hey, Bible study with Young Life. And then on a Friday night, it was a totally different story. And this 
living a lie began to eat away at my soul like acid. And I hated being a hypocrite. I hated living this double standard. And yet, I was caught in a real quandary. Because as I just described to you a few moments ago, I had no power. Christ was not at the center of my life. I had thought I had done him a great big favor by accepting him as my savior. And so I had no resource except but to pray. And I'll never forget, it was on a Friday night in May, 1967. I came home from one of those sordid dates with my boyfriend and... Uh, and I ran upstairs, threw myself on my bed, great heaving sobs of guilt and regret. And I opened up my Bible and I just banged my fist on it and I said, God, I can't, I can't live this way. And yet I don't have the courage to turn away from you because I know you are true. I know you are right. But Lord, I feel like I'm at some kind of crossroads that if I don't get right with you now, I am never going to get right. So Lord, do something in my life, anything in my life, to turn it around. And indeed, that was the second most significant spontaneous prayer I ever prayed. I mean, looking back in retrospect, I wonder what God must have been thinking when he heard me pray that prayer certainly he took my words seriously because not but three months later on a sultry July afternoon um, I went to the beach to work on my tan did my nails colored my hair uh, swam out to this raft that was anchored about 30 yards offshore hoisted myself up onto it and took this ridiculously stupid pike dive into very shallow water. And to make a long story short, my head hit bottom. I snapped my head back, crushing my spinal column. You guys know the story. You probably did book reports on my book in fifth grade. And <laughs> Some girl said to me in the locker room, I got an A-plus on my book report. On <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I'm laughing now, but hey, let me tell you, underneath the water, when I was holding my breath, desperately hoping that my sister Kathy would notice, you know, that I hadn't surfaced from my dive, I'd gone to the beach with her that day. Um, you know, I, I, I knew that I had not taken a deep breath, and I also knew that I couldn't move my arms, legs, everything was totally paralyzed. I was face down in the water, and seconds were ticking by and and truly my life was flashing before my face I knew I was going to drown at that point I knew I was going to die it was a feeling of terror much like the terror I saw in uh, Hank Gather's eyes on the on the floor the other night when you know that eternity is pressed up right against you well um, little did I realize that at that very instant my sister, indeed, had her back turned to me, had no idea that I had even had this accident. She was wading up into the shallow water. Um, a crab bit her toe. It shocked her. She turned around and, and called to me to watch out for crabs. And in that also same instant, realized that I was nowhere in sight and figured that something desperately awful had happened. She came swimming after me and saved me. And, uh, 
And I love crab salad to this day. I really do. Great stuff, crabs. And great that God was in control of such an eensy, weensy, teensy, tiny little creature as the little pincher claw of a crab to pinch my sister's toe in that vast bay that a crab should bite my sister's toe at the same instant that I need to be saved from death. <gasps> Tell me there's not a God. Anyway, they um, took me to a hospital where I stayed for two years, one year of which was in bed. And the first couple of months, I had a lot of time to think. Now, I have to confess that, indeed, at first it was a little novel. You know, it was, it was, it was kind of a novelty that I was injured. I mean, all my friends were sending get-well cards and... People were coming by to see me, and I knew that people were talking about what was going on. I knew folks were praying. It was really neat. But as the weeks wore into months, and as get well cards kept coming, and yet I wasn't getting well, uh, depression began to sink in. And I'll never forget my boyfriend. Remember I told you about him? I mean, obviously we weren't dating at that point. We had stopped dating after I'd prayed that prayer. And he had come by to see me one day, and he was sitting at my bedside with tears in his eyes, and he said, why? Why, why has this happened? I can't believe it. I mean, he was heading off to college. A lot of my friends were getting jobs. One or two of them were getting married. And I felt like life was passing me by. And I'm listening to him say to me, why, Johnny? I can't believe this is happening to you. And right there, it hit me. I know why it's happened. I prayed that prayer. I prayed that stupid, ridiculous prayer. And I cannot believe that God took it seriously. It's like, God, you should have known better. I mean, why in the world would you take my prayer seriously? And you think I was depressed before. I really got depressed and very angry against this God who would have been so ogreish as to answer a sincere prayer to be brought closer to him. You know, if this was his idea of drawing me closer to him, then he was never to be trusted with another prayer again as far as I was concerned. And I um, became further entrenched in anger and in bitterness and indifference. Little did I realize it at this point, but two of my high school friends who were getting off to college uh, that summer, they covenanted to meet together with my church youth leader once a week, every Thursday morning, for orange juice and coffee and prayer. And these three people, my two high school friends and a church youth leader, prayed for me for one hour every week for an entire year. Not on an occasional or an infrequent basis, but in a long-term committed, very specific commitment to pray for me. I'm glad they didn't tell me because I think I would have scoffed at them and told them to just lighten up and forget it and go on with your life and I'm going to lay in here in this hospital like some zombie waiting to die, so don't bother to pray. But they did pray, thankfully. I didn't feel the effect of their prayers at first. I was beginning to read books by Franz Kafka and Viktor Frankl, and I really got into Hermann Hesse for a while. He was um, an Eastern mystic, mystic, mystic writer and Siddhartha, and I was, you know, just trying. It was during the 60s, the late 60s. I was trying to 
find meaning in life. I was not about to go back to the Bible. But these friends of mine who kept praying were so persistent. They would come into the hospital and they just, they love me. I don't know, they just love me. They didn't come in and quote to me 16 good biblical reasons as to why all this has happened to you, Johnny. No, they didn't do that. They just loved me with a practical, real, kind of tangible love. I mean, they, they would come in on Saturday afternoons. And I was a big NCAA fan back then. And they'd sit on the edge of my bed and we'd watch University of Maryland beat, you know, beat Clemson. And, and it was wonderful. They just did not treat me like a slab of baloney in, in bed. They, they treated me like a person. Not a cripple, not an invalid, but a person who just happened to have a disability. And their love began to slowly wear me down. One night, after visiting hours were over, my girlfriend Jackie Popolek had uh, hidden in the solarium. Lights were out, the nurses were back in their nurses' station. Most of my roommates were asleep in the hospital there. I was in a, a ward with um, five other girls. And Jackie Popolek snuck out of the solarium, crawled on her hands and knees past the nurse's station, crawled into my ward, sneaked up onto my bed, and it was like one of these things, like, what, what are you doing here, you idiot? The nurses are going to find you and throw you out. And she didn't say a word. She climbed up into bed with me. It was about 10.30 at night. And grasped my hand. I couldn't feel her hold my hand. But she raised it up slightly so I could see our fingers were intertwined. And she laid there and just sang, Man of sorrows, what a name For the Son of God who came Ruined sinners to reclaim Hallelujah, what a Savior That kind of love. Not preachy, teachy love, but just wrap the arms of Jesus around you tenderly and gently kind of love. Real love. And um, her sweetness, along with the sincerity of my other friends who were Christians, began to break through in a big way. And um, I remember one friend, a guy named Steve Estes, uh, came into my hospital shortly thereafter with his Bible you know, these guys had begun to build up a lot of credibility. I mean, you know, they had won the right to be heard. So at that point, if they wanted to open up their Bibles, I listened to them because they were so real. You know, I loved them and I listened. And he opened up his Bible and uh, read a verse in First Thessalonians chapter 5, First Thessalonians 5.18. And at my bedside, he read this. He said, Johnny, here it says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And at first I felt like throwing up on his shoes. That's a cheeky thing for you to say to me. I mean, you know, I've been in this hospital almost a year now, and God knows when I'm ever going to get out. I'm still not even able to sit up in a wheelchair. I can't even tolerate the thought of living for the rest of my life paralyzed. And he read it again. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And I said to Steve, I said, time out, back off. I, I'm not thankful. There is no way 
you are going to get me to be thankful for a life of total paralysis. And my friend wisely said, well, Johnny, the Bible's not telling you there that in everything you've got to feel thankful, but in everything, give thanks. You know, for once in your 18-year-old, 19-year-old life, would you please push aside your emotions, your fickle feelings, your your heart, which vacillates up, down, left, right, in and out. I mean, you know, you so get guided by your circumstances. If a circumstance smacks you broadside of the face and it looks halfway decent, you follow it. If not, you turn the other way. You're just kind of going through life like you're a ball in a pinball machine and bouncing off of things here and there, and you hope you end up in the right place. Johnny, it's not the way to live. Quit bouncing off of circumstances emotionally and set the feelings aside. And for once in your life, take God at his word and in everything give thanks. But why? Why should I give thanks? Okay, so I don't have to feel thankful. I'll buy that. But give thanks? I don't understand. I need to know the whys and the wherefores. And my friend Steve said, Johnny, come on. I mean, even if God were to tell you why your accident happened, I mean, it would be like pouring million-gallon truths into your one-ounce pea brain. I don't think you'd be able to understand much, at least right now. Well, I still can't give thanks for a life of total paralysis. Okay, I'll buy that I don't have to feel thankful. I'll buy that I don't have to understand all the ins and outs, the blueprint of this whole disability thing. But I cannot give thanks for a life. A life in a wheelchair. And my friend said, you don't have to. The Bible's not asking you to do that. If you can't take life all at once, then take it in bite-sized, manageable chunks. Give thanks for something, anything for which you can give thanks for. Small things. Start small, but start somewhere. And he closed up his Bible. And the next morning I woke up and I said, okay, I'm going to give thanks. I am going to... I am going to give thanks for the fact that they're serving hospital breakfast on our end of the hallway. First, that means at least the cornmeal mush will be warm. And I thank you that I've, I'm, I can sit up in my wheelchair five hours. That's better than the two hours last week. And God, I thank you for my friends. God, they're so great. They're wonderful. They're, they're really good friends. Oh, and I thank you that at occupational therapy last week when I was learning how to feed myself with that special spoon, it was so wonderful to get more applesauce in my mouth than on my forehead. That was great. <laughs> and God, I thank you for my mom and my dad. I mean, they've really hung in there with me. They've been wonderful. I mean, you know, just months earlier, I was so mad at them for my accident. I felt like it was all their fault. I wouldn't be in this stupid predicament had you never got me born. You know, you ever felt like you wanted to make your parents pay? You want them to participate in your pain. <laughs> but, you know, I said, God, thank you. Thank you so much for my mom and my dad. They're just really great to hang in there with me. I mean, these are the kinds of things I was able to give thanks for. And you'll never guess what happened. About a month later, I, I began to feel different. I began to feel, feel thankful, not just you know, willfully with a step of the faith empowered by the Holy Spirit, give thanks. But I began to 
feel thankful. It was like God was rewarding me for taking this step of faith, believing in his word. He was rewarding me with this incredible emotion of thankfulness. And, and, and because I had been obedient, I mean, I can look back on it now and kind of dissect it and understand it. But because I had been obedient, God was enlarging the capacity of my faith. He was ripping it open, stretching it open, so that I was able then to give thanks for greater things. And that's the point where I, where I didn't merely cope with my disability. I, I didn't merely adjust to my circumstances. I didn't merely acquiesce to the problems at hand. I didn't even merely accept. I embraced the will of God. Because Romans chapter 12 tells us that God's will for you is good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. And don't you ever let the adversary tell you any different. And that's when I embraced the will of God. I didn't merely resign myself to my circumstances. You know people who resign themselves to their circumstances? Oh, well, this is my lot in life. But I tell you, I'm going to handle it. I don't want anybody's help. I'm not going to go around wearing my faith on the sleeve cheaply for everybody to see. No, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need assistance. I don't want welfare. This is not a wheelchair. It's just a chair with wheels. No. I mean, that's, that's resigning yourself to your circumstances. And embracing is not submitting. You know, you, pe you hear people say that they yield or submit themselves. And I... I don't know. I think that's kind of a second-rate way to approach God's will. You know, people who submit themselves to their circumstances, oh, I've got such a burden to bear. This cross God has given me is so heavy. But I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle it. Of course, I'll make sure everybody around me sees how well I'm handling it, too. You know? Now, that's, that's not embracing the will of God. Embracing the will of God is saying yes to the Lord Jesus. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Right after I prayed that third most significant spontaneous prayer, where I said yes to Jesus, I give thanks. I was lying in bed one night. It was about, oh, two years into my hospital stay. And I pictured Jesus coming to visit me. Now, don't get me wrong, I didn't see any visions, no, you know, ghosty apparitions, no heebie-jeebie things. Just, I just pictured, I just imagined Jesus coming to visit me. And it was late, it was dark, my roommates were asleep. The light of the nurse's station cast a kind of warm yellow glow on the linoleum tile. And I pictured Jesus walking in the doorway of our ward and... As he walked toward my bedside, I, I imagined him leaving dusty footprints of his sandal on the shiny linoleum floor. And I pictured him coming up to the side of my bed and grabbing the guardrail and with a heavy clunk, clunk, lowering it. And then just sitting on the edge of my mattress. And I pictured him just leaning over and gently with the backside of his hand brushing my cheek so tenderly as we know he would. And brushing back my hair. And then saying to me, Johnny, if I loved you enough to die for you, 
Don't you think I know best how to give you joy and peace and life? And then him showing me with his other hand the nail-scarred palm. He who has given us his own son, shall he not graciously give us all things? I can say that all things now fit together into a pattern for good. doesn't mean all things are good. I mean, there's nothing inherently good about the famine that's going on in Ethiopia right now. There's nothing inherently good about ventilator-dependent quadriplegics who want to, you know, get off their breathing machines so that they can commit personal suicide. There's nothing inherently good about abortion or or divorce or or child abuse or wife abuse. These things are not good in and of themselves. But God, in this mysterious, miraculous way, has this incredible capacity to take these awful things and work them together into some marvelous plan and pattern for good. And I can say with the Apostle Paul, who incidentally also had a physical disability, I don't know what it was, but he had one too. He said that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because God's grace is sufficient. Grace, one of those religious words that you hear a lot and you're not even sure what it means. Grace, the desire, the power to do his will, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because God's grace is sufficient. He gives me the desire and the power to do his will. When I am at my weakest, then he is at his strongest. Now, I don't know what kind of disability you've got. I mean, mine's pretty obvious. And I, frankly, have gotten to the point where I not only have given thanks, and I'm not only thankful, I've not only embraced the will of God, but hallelujah, I can rejoice. (laughs) As it says in Romans, I can rejoice in the suffering. Man, what a privilege to suffer on his behalf. I don't mind being in this wheelchair a short 20, 30 more years, if indeed it means the gathering of many more people into his kingdom by whatever I might share through, through a wheelchair and to the fact that I can smile, not in spite of the problems, but because of them. I can rejoice. I know that you're disabled too, uh, not with a physical disability, although, although, although some of you, um, your hair frizzes when it rains, Clearasil doesn't do a thing for your face. I mean, those are, you know, I don't mean to trivialize or, or patronize the idea of how physical your disability might mean, but you might have other kind of handicaps. Maybe you're paralyzed by fear. Maybe your GPA took a nosedive. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe you're just not able to live up to your parents' ex- expectations no matter what you do. Maybe you feel handicapped by loneliness. Maybe you're one of those who is desperately fearful of singleness for the rest of your life. You're afraid you'll get the gift. And man, you know you'll be handicapped, right? I mean, you just look at this like it's a real disability. Well, I don't know what kind of prayers you'll pray about these things in your life, some of which are difficult to deal with, some of which are depressing, some of which are unnerving. Maybe your disability is self-inflicted. Maybe you, too, are locked in one of those immoral sexual relationships. 
and you're professing the name of Christ, and so is your girlfriend, or so is your boyfriend, as the case may be, or whatever. And you know it's wrong. The disability is self-inflicted, and the handicap is crippling you. The hypocrisy is paralyzing you. Can you pray one of those significant prayers? No matter what your weakness might be, be it spiritual, be it moral, be it emotional, or be it physical, God says that his power can show up best in your weakness, and he wants to make you a strong testimony. And I love what Malcolm Muggeridge once said. He said that Jesus is the prophet not to the winners, but to losers, proclaiming that the last are indeed first. It's the weak who are strong. It is fools in Christ who are wise. It is those who are poor in spirit, recognizing it as rich. And it is the lowly, not the proud, who shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray a, a spontaneous and a significant prayer.